Welcome to Media Futures Spotlights, a series that's exploring the great research coming out of the Media Futures Hub at UNSW Sydney. I'm Dr. Tanya Dreyer, I'm your host for today, and I'm speaking to you from the unceded lands of the Wadi Wadi people on Darawal country in what is now called Wollongong, Australia. Here on the pod, we acknowledge and pay our respects to elders past and present, and we express our solidarity with the movements for Black and First Nations lives. My guest today is Maddie Hitchens. Maddie is a higher degree researcher in the Media Futures Hub, and we're going to talk today about Maddie's work on social media anxiety. Maddie, welcome to the Media Futures Hub podcast. Thank you for having me, Tanya. It's really great to have the um, the opportunity to chat. Maddie, what are you working on now? I'm currently kind of just working through my thesis bit by bit, so a bit of a grueling part, but I've been studying and unpacking something that I've called digital anxiety um, and kind of, you know, looking into this connection between social media and anxiety and the kind of narrative that have been told about it, whether any of that's actually kind of accurate and just figuring out what the connection is. Yeah, great. You know, I know in your work, you really explore the way in which this idea about, you know, the connection between social media and anxiety has become so much a part of public popular debate and the like. But what brought you to this topic? It certainly started with my own anxiety um, as a something that I've kind of, you know, dealt with for a very long time. Um, and I suppose that as I got older, I grew up with kind of as I grew up, technology progressed. And so a lot of my adolescence is kind of pieced out on different um, media platforms. And I suppose I just saw my own kind of connections to anxiety and social media. And I wondered whether, you know, it was being exacerbated by my use or I kind of thought it was just a me thing. Like maybe I just find this stressful. Um, and then I kind of, you know, just endeavoured into seeing, well, maybe it's not so much a me thing, hearing people speak about it, hearing all the discourse around social media and anxiety made me want to really explore it in a kind of deeper way. Yeah, it's, it's great. And I hadn't realised just how the discipline and practice of psychology has played a part in identifying and defining this social media anxiety disorder. And the, you know, the disorder part is important, of course, what do you see as the implications of this psychologizing and pathologizing of social media anxiety? When I read, you know, the kind of literature that first came around when the internet was popularized, they first called it, I think, like internet disorder. The terminology is super similar to like drug or alcohol addiction. And the actual like the ways that they would write to identify yourself were very much just like subbed in from like a different kind of, you know, addiction model and I thought that was really interesting and this whole kind of cyber psychology field kind of came to be in the late 90s early 2000s where people were looking at the internet and mood disorders and such and a lot of it came about young people particularly because I guess they were the most dominant users of the internet but I just found it really interesting into like you know the psychological language and the kind of pathologizing of what to me seemed like a pretty like simple connection I mean the the link between media and anxiety is 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 much older than social media um you know with technology and haunted media and such so in many ways it's I think just a new medium but the same anxiety being kind of you know perpetuated and, and spoken about 
Yeah, it's really interesting, you know, some of those key features that you're you're sketching there, you know, the focus on young people, um, the idea of addiction and the like. I can certainly hear there, you know, earlier debates, maybe even moral panics around ga gaming and, you know, almost any uh, any new media and comms form re really. You know, it's it's really great how you're un you're unpacking uh, the way that that's playing out in terms of uh, social media specifically in this moment. So given the, the limitations, the problems with that kind of psychological framing, what are the key concepts and frames that you're deploying to develop a different sort of analysis? Yeah, sure. So I've been really inspired by the work of Mark Fisher, um, particularly um, his work Capitalist Realism. And there's a section where he discusses the rise of depression um, amongst young people. And um, he kind of calls it like a, a neoliberalized disorder in the sense that for him, it was silly to think of it as an individual problem when all these young people are all like suffering with depression and anxiety at higher rates. It seemed to be a social problem, right, for him, not, a, not an individual problem. And so he really looked to kind of like late capitalism and the I guess, like the degradation of lots of social institutions, et cetera, as the reason why perhaps people were feeling, you know, a lot more panicked. And I've kind of taken a similar mode of thinking and applied like a capitalist realist critique to a lot of these internet disorder, social media anxiety disorder narratives, because I'm kind of following the line of thought that by individualizing them um, and kind of pathologizing them, I think we're actually misinterpreting what's happening. And if anything, it's just kind of letting the anxiety, you know, fester um, and multiply. So he, he employs a bit of like a kind of Zizekian ideology critique. And I've definitely followed in that direction and deployed my own kind of means of looking at manifestations of what I'm calling digital anxiety and kind of following where it's channeled and kind of, you know, just trying to figure out how it manifests. Yeah, and and I, I know also Fisher's work also, he's looking at the way in which individualizing, pathologizing of, um, I think he calls it the mental health plague, doesn't he? Oh, that's, yeah, that's certainly a, a concept or whatever, that that really forecloses any possibility for politicization. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm thinking here even about, you know, we've had so much, and, and it's a really important point, but we've had so much discussion about, you know, the mental health impacts of of lockdowns it's really mm -hmm. interesting about when it is that mental health concerns make it onto the um onto the political agenda and when they don't you know we very rarely yes. we very rarely talk about the mental health costs of mass unemployment or precarious work and the like that's that's of much less interest but anyway i just want i was just interested whether you maybe had a little bit more to say also about how fisher's argument about this foreclosing of um any possibility of politicization of politics possibly in even the idea I think it's a key part of capitalist realism isn't it even the the difficulty of just even imagining alternatives is all part of the mix does that play out in your project I mean definitely in the sense that I'm not advocating that there's necessarily like a cure or a fix all I I'm definitely viewing social media anxiety in a similar way in that it's able to kind of defy politicization by kind of hiding in these like little disordered pockets. 
just as kind of mental health and depression crisis as Fisher talks about. Um, And I think that it functions in a very similar way in that as long as we keep kind of individualizing social media anxiety, we're not imagining alternatives to it, just as Fisher argues with capitalism. It really does close off any kind of imagination or alternative or kind of, you know, bigger picture. And that's kind of how it functions. He calls it the late capitalism is more of a pervasive atmosphere. It's something that you can't even really see. And that's what's so insidious about it. And I think the connections between social media as like a big capitalist business um, are certainly relevant here in that instead of looking at the kind of business decisions and the way that our desires are being mobilized for profit, we're instead focusing on ourselves and by kind of keeping it on this like shallow individual basis, I think a lot of the kind of deeper mechanisms of social media as like an ecosystem are able to, you know, continue despite many um, what I call lots of unveilings of it in various articles or the social dilemma documentary on Netflix. We often have a lot of these like reveals (laughs) that it's bad or that it's it's making us feel anxious on purpose. And I think the fact that, that those reveals don't make any change kind of to me just suggests that this individualization isn't working. You talk really powerfully about the sort of the limitations of the the calling out. Uh, I guess certainly in the yes. in the <laughs> yeah in the mode of say a film like the the social dilemma and the like. It's certainly not as if all we need to do is is reveal the uh, the hidden workings or whatever, and and therefore the alternatives or the the change happens. There might be a connection there. I'm, I'm thinking now about the way in which you work with Lauren Berlant's work, actually. And, you know, we've all just recently been incredibly saddened at the news of Lauren Berlant's death. And so we've been able also to, um, you know, really focus on the amazing contribution there. And you use Berlant's idea of cruel optimism in the work you're doing. Could you tell me a bit more about the importance of, of Berlant's work for your own and, and how it plays out in your project? Yeah, definitely. I was kind of suggested to read Berlant when I was kind of trying to figure out how to phrase that kind of, you know, lowbrow way of saying it is we're in this kind of toxic relationship um, with social media. And I was suggested to read about the way Berlant is able to discuss this cycle of hopefulness in the face of knowing that it's not real, so cruel optimism. Um, and she uses the American dream as like a primary example of something that we strive for, that we want to believe, and we want to believe it so much that in the face of knowing it's not real and we're going to be let down, we keep going anyway. And I certainly think that that's a really similar way to how we view social media in that we know that it can cause harm if that's the word people would like to use um we know that it exploits our feelings we know we know we know we know is kind of the repetitive thing we come to and yet we keep using it and I think that it's because we're caught in this cycle of cruel optimism in that we can't let go of the fantasy that social media gives us even though we do know like deep down that it will never be fulfilled. And so I think Balance's work and the way she's able to kind of discuss ideology being embedded in fantasy was really influential, particularly for me in this last year of really articulating what I mean when I kind of say that we, we know better 
but we we don't want to we want to keep going the way we're going we don't want to let go of social media despite the anxiety that we feel yeah it's such powerful and 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 resonant work and i guess it really complicate in a really generative sort of way uh maybe a very mechanical kind of idea of false consciousness or something like that yeah definitely i guess it opens up different ways of analyzing and and thinking forward I was struck also, I'm thinking about you're really focusing in on anxiety as the key sort of concept and affective state and also, you know, the the way in which that's psychologized and the like. And I wondered whether there's anything more to be said about the sort of gendered binary that is sometimes at at play. I I know, I mean, if we're back in the realm of of pop psychology and the like, which is where the social media um, anxiety disorder possibly belongs, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking there's also some um, definitely, you know, quite simplistic, but possibly useful arguments and observations about the way in which um, anxiety is often feminized. And if I think about, you know, other social media concerns or whatever, maybe the concern that are gendered more male might be around maybe radicalization or porn addiction or you know that seems to me there is a bit of a, mm-hmm. a, a, a um, that very classic sort of gender binary at play and is you know anxiety sometimes more framed in terms of um, seeing and being seen and you know a whole bunch of processes that are often analyzed through mm-hmm. through feminist media studies and I just wondered whether in the work that you're doing and the examples that you're looking at also the concepts and theories that you're mobilizing whether Uh, there was any sense yes that uh, gender dynamics might be a part of the picture yeah it definitely is how to put gender into my work has been something I've kind of grappled with from the beginning because in terms of my own personal experience and there is a lot of my own voice in the work in that you know it was really started because of my own anxiety Um, my experience growing up as a woman as a girl for me is very embedded in my experience of anxiety And I've, you know, often thought about, yeah, the way it is feminized and and even looking at the platforms and ideas, genres of media that have arisen with kind of this digital turn. To me, a lot of it is feminized, you know, in a generative sense, in the way that it's quite like confessional, Um, you know, vlogging itself, kind of turning a camera on and talking to it is viewed, I guess, in a kind of a feminine way. And so I think a lot about social media and the um, broadcasting of oneself and the self-representation is really entangled with these ideas of, you know, a more feminine kind of media engagement. But at the same time, I'm, again, obviously not a psychologist. (laughs) I'm taking this from a more, you know, media field. But I, I imagine that, you know, perhaps radicalization and addiction in the you know the more masculine media tropes we think about are probably potentially alternative manifestations of anxiety maybe I think anxiety the reason I chose it to focus on besides my own connection is I think anxiety is really a really productive affect in that you know if it was just depression um I don't know about you but when I feel really depressed I don't feel like doing much whereas anxiety you're kind of struck with this nervous energy that you need to deploy elsewhere and I think that's kind of what helps us stay in this circuit of engagement with digital media and whether that's like you know um, reading radicalization threads um, and kind of commenting or whether that's 
you know, viewing like more beauty content, I think they're potentially just different manifestations of this anxious energy that social media is very good at kind of taking from us and encouraging us to push it back into the system, back into the feed. Yeah, that's so interesting what you're saying. And in terms of the way in which that connects with what we know of the the kind of the political economy and also the architectures then of even the platform economy more, more broadly and the idea about the, you know, the central importance of maintaining that heightened affect and engagement um, that keeps us, you know, on the platform or, you know, scrolling through and clicking and engaging in whatever way of, you know, the platforms are completely content neutral in that sense as to it doesn't matter yeah. what um, what keeps the eyeballs on the screen and the, and the clicks coming through and everything. But yes, to think about that extracting value from this kind of, you know, really pervasive anxiety, which is, yeah, so widely experienced and so often often connected to um, yeah being energized and productive and the like and you know keeping that in balance rather than wanting to avoid yeah avoidance isn't very productive for social media they don't want that from us I don't think they want us to be engaged to feel anxious but also there's that like anxious energy that like jittered and I feel like that's why, yeah, they have, whether it was, you know, um, intended from the first place, I don't know. But I certainly think that as time has passed, you know, it's been realised that this is what's productive. And like you said, they're content neutral, um, which is why I find discussions about whether certain platforms are like, you know, purposefully pushing certain agendas, like Facebook is often cops a lot of critique in that sense. And I love critiquing Facebook. Um, don't get me wrong, but I don't think that they're, you know, purposefully deploying certain content as much as it's whatever is sticky to use kind of like Sarah Ahmed's term, whatever will get people moving. They don't really care what it is that's irrelevant to them. It's the engagement that it fosters that's important. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that might be anxiety, anger, or mm-hmm. you know, it could be all, all sorts of, but it's it's that kind of, you know, slightly elevated, heightened kind of sense of experience and engagement. Yeah, totally. So you've got such a convincing and compelling account here of this, <laughs> this very pervasive experience that I certainly can relate to and I can imagine many many people listening now also um, can relate to this as a you know a really really common uh, feature of of our daily lives and yet I know that you resist the question of how to fix this (laughs) what might be the cure for all of this Mm. and I can imagine there's a connection there back to the psychologizing but there's more as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to know about your resistance to the idea of a cure and what might be a more productive way to think about the so what or the alternative. Um, one of the first times I presented these ideas at like a conference at UNSW, it was kind of, they weren't all media people watching. It was a bit of a mixed, a mixed bag. Um, and when I finished, the chairperson was like, oh, that's all really compelling stuff. Um, what do we do? He's like, I'm really concerned. Um, what do you suggest we do? And I was kind of like, uh, I, it threw me for a loop because I was hoping it would be clear a little bit that I, I wasn't as interested in proposing what to do as much as 
you know, figuring out what's happening. And I suppose it is linked my resistance to that kind of like pathologization of it. But I also have seen a lot of people put out a lot of content about with these kind of alleged fixes. Um, for example, the suggestion, if, if we think about detoxing, right, this idea of oh, I'm a bit, my phone makes me anxious. Social media makes me anxious. So I'm going to like have a weekend without it, which is a pretty common coping mechanism that I've heard. And I've, you know, just spoken to people, students, friends, they, they deploy this a lot. And so, you know, they turn it off and they don't use it. But then you come back and you log back in and you kind of end up getting back to this really big anxiety spiral. Again, it's really just a cycle. I think for me and I think that the detox or the cure is part of that cycle if that makes sense you have to kind of offload it enough that you can come back and start again so they don't lose you and we've even seen apps be created like the forest app to help people with um maintain do you know the forest app Tanya I don't know it fill me in (laughs) it's like this app where the the longer you don't click out of the app like you create it creates these beautiful trees and forest and greenery and the idea is that you kind of it compels you to 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 concentrate because you don't want to destroy your beautiful you know oasis and so it's it's beautiful and meditative and I understand that but uh, I think that's one example of these kind of productivity apps that are designed to help you maintain concentration but it's to maintain concentration through their platform yeah which I find you know it's very lucrative for them to do that and there is something to do with forests that like every tree they donate or they plant a tree um not denying that's important but i just find it interesting these kind of productivity apps that have been created to help us cope with the digital technology but all of those apps entail us eventually going back to like kind of regular basis i just find that interesting that they kind of they don't propose or offer any kind of alternative really I think it just kind of delays the anxiety for a little bit until we come back yeah I love how you um you know you write about social media anxiety as symptomatic of the complete dysfunction of of late capitalism particularly under neoliberalism and I think that's so incredibly persuasive and your example here I didn't know the forest app sorry um but it does remind me of the um you know just the incredible recuperative power of capitalism and the and the way in which you know every kind of response or cure or solution uh, still maintains this kind of very individualized and psychologized kind of framing and approach and that you know just keeps us within this constant project of self-management um, well-being and the like and so there I think really back again to to where you started with Fisher yeah, yeah and this idea of always foreclosing on the political on the the potential for for politicization it yes yeah, very compelling across your work <laughs> yeah thank you i think there's something that he says this is paraphrasing but to the tune of the capitalism is most effective like when it goes unnoticed in that you know people who are going through these things whether it's like these increased rates of depression it's beneficial for capitalism for people to feel like it's personal Um, Or even in a more Australia lens, you know, like this kind of, um, as you mentioned, Tanya, like mass unemployment, our welfare system, even it's a lot more beneficial for people to feel like they're dysfunctional. And that if only they tried hard enough, 
you know, they could get better and they could fix it. And I think by locating it in the self, which, you know, we're already so vulnerable to, I think, this kind of self-chastisement, it's the perfect kind of mask for it in that even though we know it's not really us, we are aware of these systematic issues. The thing with anxiety and, and any of these affects really is that they're felt in such a internal level that it feels like it's coming from within you and that that kind of actual like affect is so difficult to disconnect from you know it feels so personal and so individual and it feels like it's only your experience I think it feels so insular and you know I think in many ways that's why this is able to just keep going so easily why it's so easy to perpetuate in that it feels individual to us despite all the conversations I've had with people when talking about my research that made me realize it wasn't there's still that slight feeling sometimes that you know it could just be a me problem. And I think, yeah, that's the really difficult part to overcome. And I don't know that we can, um, not to be cynical, but I, I'm not sure. It's, it's so difficult. I don't know that we can imagine an alternative either. Yeah, absolutely hear what you're saying. And as you as you were talking, I was thinking also about the way in which, you know, anxiety is so embodied, like it, there's so many physical sensations that come along with it that again, just underline this sense of that there's an internal issue here, rather than a response to maybe a completely unlivable or unjust world. <laughs> yeah, perfectly reasonable response. <laughs> perfectly. Yeah, absolutely nothing pathological about it. In fact, no. Possibly the context is pathological, not the individual response to it. Certainly. Yeah, absolutely. It's such great work, Maddie. Um, what's coming up next? Besides just kind of chugging along and finishing up, I'm excited for when I kind of am able to get my work out there that I've done a couple of interviews with some really interesting figures because I wanted to get a bit of a lived experience narrative to the work, particularly because it was my kind of hypothesis that those people with more of a following probably felt this anxiety at an increased level. So I spoke to a few people who, for them, social media is their job. And there's some really interesting kind of nuances that have come through there around, you know, anxiety around visibility, performance, relatability. Um, so I'm really excited to explore more of what I'm calling kind of modalities of digital anxiety beyond just the disorder. The disorder is like the really kind of prevalent one, but there are kind of other little manifestations. I'm really excited to put all that together and to be able to present those works. Brilliant. Can't wait. Can't wait to see you um, develop that work. I'm thinking there even of um, work recently completed in the Media Futures Hub on social media influencers and the, the gendered labour of the um, of the social media influencer. And, and Certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Managing and negotiating uh, anxiety is absolutely central there. Such a great chat, Maddie. Thank you so very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it's really great. It's been really great. That's it for this episode of the Media Futures Spotlights. For more info about the Media Futures Hub, please visit us. Uh, we're at www.mediafutureshub.org. Please also rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help new listeners to find us and you can spread the word as well. Special thanks to our fabulous producer, that's the super talented Cara Jensen McKinnon, and to our research assistant, the brilliant Bron Miller. This podcast was made possible by funding from the School of Arts and Media at UNSW, the University of New South Wales. 
Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and we'll be with you again soon.